promise of public cloud is tantalizing and frightening by both turns. There's the promise of moving all your infrastructure to the cloud and magically simplifying your operations. There's the terror of moving all your infrastructure to the cloud and immediately putting yourself out of a job. It turns out that neither of those prospects are necessarily true and that reality is far more nuanced. So what is that reality? That is the topic we'll be exploring today on Day 2 Cloud Podcast. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud, a frank discussion of what happens when cloud stops being polite and starts getting real. This is Episode 2, and I'm your host, Ned Bellavance, Ned1313 on the Twitters. Our guest today is Kenny Lowe. He is a Senior Principal Azure Stack Technologist for EMEA for Dell EMC. Welcome to the show, Kenny. Hi, Ned. It's uh, great to be here. That's quite a title, Senior Principal yeah. <laughs> Azure Stack Technologist. Ed. So uh, obviously Azure Stack is involved and, and that's uh, how we met up, uh, in fact. Um, so know, I, I think that, uh, that the bigger the company you work at, the more uh, uh, hyperbole they have to add on to your <laughs> table to, to fit the number of people into the business. Yeah, that's true. And you need to be more specific about you know, which area of the business you're working in. You can't just be like senior consultant. Nope. Yeah, wow. Um, so the thing that I wanted to... Well, actually, before we get into the topic at hand, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Uh, well, I uh, work on Azure Stack at Dell EMC now as part of the product group. Uh, but for the last, I guess, dozen or so years, I've predominantly worked at service providers. Uh, and for the last five or so of those, I've been focused almost entirely on Azure and Azure Stack solutions uh, and helping customers to, to move into the cloud and make the most of it. Okay. And it's an interesting perspective that you end up with because usually when we're talking about the cloud, we're talking about Azure and AWS and like the the big guys, but working for an MSP, uh, did you also have uh, in-house hosting, like sort of private cloud? Oh, yeah. Um, Well, I wouldn't even call cloud now, uh, (laughs) advanced virtualization. Uh, But yeah, back in the day, we would call that our private cloud. Come, Come to our uh, VMware Hyper-V private clouds and reap all all the benefits. And it turns out that's not entirely true. Uh, and I draw a clear delineation now between what is cloud and what is just advanced virtualization. Okay. So, I mean, that's an interesting uh, topic in and of itself. So yeah. how would you draw that line between what's considered true cloud versus what's considered just advanced virtual machines? You know, it's probably a bit of a cop-out, but if we look at the, <laughs> the, the, the Gartner Magic Quadrant, uh, just for uh, public IaaS just now, uh, mm-hmm. There used to be a huge number of companies on there, and they've really split that down to, well, just three now. There's, uh, well, there are a few more, but three leaders. So there's uh, AWS, there's Azure, and there's Google that exist in that uh, leader space now. Uh, and everyone else is out of it. And that's kind of how I always expected it to go. It's, what's it called, the rule of three in economics, where in any industry, it'll always trend down to two or three key players in there, uh, owning mm-hmm. most of the market, and then a few niche players uh, filling in the gaps. And we've kind right. of got to that place in, in public cloud now with AWS, Azure, and Google. Okay. Uh, and then uh, that, that their uh, real value comes from their pace of change and their scale. Uh, and that's something that just couldn't be matched on premises. So while AWS and Azure and Google are exploding and expanding 
and adding new services pretty much day after day after day. On premises, we couldn't really keep up with that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. With our uh, our really good VMware and Hyper-V environments, which can run virtual machines and have a strong ecosystem built around them, but they're not built to do the same things as you do in the public cloud. You, there's a whole host of different things you can do there that you just can't do on-premises now. Right. So I would suppose that for most companies, part of the plan of embracing the cloud is to get rid of that on-premises infrastructure. Uh, but it's not just a straight lift and shift uh, and all your problems magically go away. Uh, what's sort of like the, the trend that, that you see uh, companies or you know, companies that you helped uh, moving into the cloud, what was their original plan for the move? So typically people think that, uh, or at least those that I've interacted with, let's not speak for everyone, but people <laughs> that I, uh, I've spoken to in the past think that uh, the main reasons to move to the public cloud are cost reasons, uh, right. It's rid of. They think it's going to be cheaper, or they think it's going to be more flexible. At least uh, right. they want to move to from capex to opex, so they don't want to have any big infrastructure outlays anymore. That's fair. Uh, they want to move to a, a more opex model of expenditure now. Um, they see all. <laughs> there's an awful lot of publicity around things like AI and machine learning and uh, DevOps in the cloud. And mm -hmm. uh, if you don't take advantage of this, you're going to get left behind. Uh, so lots of people are investigating and wanting to move to take advantage of these things. Um, and ultimately, I guess they want to free up time that they spend on things down deep in the guts just now. And they want to free that time up to work on more what they would see as uh, valuable activities for their businesses. Sure. That's, so the one thing that you called out there was cost and, mm -hmm. and the idea that moving to the cloud is going to be less expensive, but... I imagine that's not always the case, uh, depending on how you approach your, your migration and, and your cloud environment. Yeah, well, you, you touched on um, one of those uh, methods earlier. You said lift and shift. Yeah. And that is how people typically approach the move to the cloud initially. They want to take their workload, their existing workload as it is, and lift it, shift it into the cloud uh, and run it exactly the same as they have. And that's typically not going to work for a few reasons. One is because it's not going to be cost optimized. You're probably going to end up spending more just to lift and shift that into the cloud than you would running it on-premises, even from a TCO perspective. Uh, when you look at some of the other benefits you get just from running that workload in the cloud, typically it's going to cost you more. Um, and then also from a, a high availability perspective, it may not work as well. Uh, in a traditional on-premises uh, virtualization environment, there are a whole lot of constructs in there to deliver high availability that might not exist in the public cloud. Uh, things like... Well, you know, in, in Hyper-V, let's take shared VHDXs, for example. Uh, that concept of shared storage between VMs doesn't exist in the same way in the public cloud. Some of the ways that you would deliver a, a high availability SQL cluster, for example, can't be done in the same way in the public cloud. So some of the constructs we've had in virtualization on-prem, you can't necessarily lift and shift into the public cloud and continue to get uh, to run in the same way. Right. I think that's a really important point that a lot of people miss is... Yes, you can have really good high availability in the cloud, but the way that you're going to approach that is going to be different than the way that you approached it in your Hyper-V or VMware cluster. You know, there's the uptime for a particular VM in Azure is not the same uptime that you might expect from a VMware cluster because they don't necessarily evacuate the host of VMs before they do, you know, maintenance on the host. They just shut down the VMs on the host and, and do the maintenance. Yeah. Yes. Although I think that Azure have recently announced that they've uh, 
they started using live migration uh, in Azure, which is pretty cool. But uh, no, you're, you're still right. It's, it's not as robust or as good as we have on-premises or as we expect for an on-premises on environment. Uh, the, the ways that we approach high availability in the public clouds are fundamentally different. Right. Are there some other components that you found are fundamentally different in the architecture that you really have to rethink your approach when you're doing that move? Um, I guess one of the main things is in, in how we do sizing of virtual machines if we're doing a lift and a shift into the cloud initially. So when we deploy a VM on premises, because we own that hardware, you can over-provision to your heart's content and it's probably not <laughs> going to cost you anymore. Uh, right. So you end up with VMs that have you know 24 gigs of RAM and eight cores and so on that are using 10% of the CPU and 5% of the RAM. And that's not necessarily costing you anymore to run. You move that into the public cloud and you're paying for every bit of that compute that you're running there. Uh, so typically what you want to do is aim for a sort of probably 95 percentile model where actually you are using most of the provisioned CPU, you are using most of the provisioned RAM there. Right. So as opposed to, you know, looking at the, you know, performance analysis for a VM, if you saw something go over 10%, you might feel a little twitchy on, on premises. Mm -hmm. Now you have to get comfortable with the idea of, yeah, I want to run that at 95% because I'm paying for every minute that that thing is running. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I feel like one of the challenges that I certainly had to deal with um, as a VMware administrator uh, was proper sizing and trying to convince the business or the application developers that if they do need additional capacity, that can be added. But the initial sizing of the VM, it's okay to go smaller. And some, some people are receptive to that, but I got a lot of pushback on that. Did you have a similar experience? Oh yeah, all the time. <laughs> people love to over-provision on-premises. Right. I, I think it's because they get used to planning for worst case scenarios. So they don't want a situation where they suddenly need more capacity and, oh, that host has no extra capacity. In fact, our cluster is out of capacity and now you can't get it. It's, it's yeah. safer probably in their mind. And, and actually that comes down to how we typically architect applications on premises versus in the cloud as well. Because typically when you want to scale an application on prem, the way we've done it traditionally is by scaling up the resource. So you add more resource to the VM, make it bigger, beefier. Right. Uh, and that, that makes your application run faster. Um, really in the public cloud, what you're aiming for is more of a scale out model for the application designed to have just more VM instances or more uh, of a component instance added onto the side rather than necessarily scaling up uh, the size of the VM itself. Right. I think one of the challenges I've seen around that, and, and maybe you've seen this too, is some applications weren't built to horizontally scale. Yeah. They, they don't know how to be properly load balanced and, and, and have multiple sessions. So in some cases, the only option really is to scale up. Have you, have you run into that? Oh yeah, yeah, often. Um, and if, if that's the case for the application and you have no control over that application's code, then that may be the, the only way to approach it. Um, in which case you need to take advantage of things like uh, Azure uh, Site Recovery, for example, to make sure that you've got a DR plan in place. Uh, if you can't have it scaled out horizontally um, as well. Right. And I, that's part of, part of the reason why they have some of the larger virtual machine models uh, available mm -hmm. for those cases where you can't just scale out really wide. There are some crazy size VMs available. 
in the cloud. Now, I, I was talking to someone just a few days ago who was saying that they thought they'd have to do their deployment on-premises because the scale they were looking at just wouldn't fit into the public cloud. And I was like, what? No, the scale that you're looking at can probably only be achieved uh, effectively in the public cloud as it stands, the, the amount of RAM that you want. And we're talking about things like uh, SatPan and the cloud now. Uh, sure. Or massive scale. Yeah, I don't know what the, the top model tops out at. Uh, it's over a terabyte of RAM, I think, uh, the yeah. biggest machines. Uh, is that the sort of scale that they were talking about, like a single yeah. virtual machine yeah, with a terabyte? We were, we were talking about doing some genomics processing. And I was okay. Like, you got, uh, some huge scale VMs available in Azure that you can just run for a short term that you need them. Uh, so you get the cost benefit there. And also you've got uh, the Microsoft Genomics Service as a PaaS service there, which takes some of the more uh, commonly used genomic sequencing algorithms and makes it available as a service to you. You don't need to buy hardware. Don't be daft. <laughs> yeah. You don't need to buy that uh, million dollar server that's only going to run one month out of the year, basically. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Um, so we've been talking a lot about virtual machines, but I know one of the things that, that you brought up uh, in our previous conversations was uh, VMs are great, but they're not the end all and be all. And if that's all you're using in the cloud, you're probably not using it right. So what would the alternatives be instead of using VMs? You know, I've slightly mellowed on that position now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, where once upon a time I would have said VMs are dead to me, everything should be in PaaS or serverless now, and that's the way forward. I've kind of mellowed on that now because actually infrastructure as a service running in the public cloud has a huge amount of value in and of itself. Uh, versus, as I said, advanced virtualization on-premises. So as we've said, if you've just lifted and shifted a VM into Azure or AWS or, or wherever it may be, there's actually a huge amount of value you get just from doing that. So if you think about when you run a VM on-premises, there's a whole host of things that run around it to support it. You have your backup infrastructure, your DR infrastructure, your patch infrastructure, your monitoring infrastructure, all of that <laughs> is just available in that VM blade when you, when you log into Azure or, or another cloud provider. Uh, and the value of that should not be understated, and nor should be the automation that comes from things like infrastructure as code and being able to rapidly redeploy uh, templated VMs. So I've, I've kind of mellowed on IaaS there, and there is a huge amount of value just in the, the lift and shift. But uh, yeah, the, the end goal should be PaaS, um, and that's not because PaaS is necessarily inherently uh, better, but it does give you more flexibility and it does give you more time back. And ultimately, that's kind of what the cloud should be all about. It's not about the cost necessarily, so much as it is about uh, scalability uh, and time. Right. And I mean, time is the one finite resource. We only have so yeah. much time. <laughs> so well, the more efficient right. you can be with that time is, is super important. Um, yeah, I think from a spending perspective, at least what I've found is that uh, once you move to the public cloud, you're not necessarily going to lower your costs, but hopefully you'll become more efficient. And so you're going to increase your profits or, or revenue. And so that'll definitely balance out, you know, your cost as a percentage of your overall, you know, uh, revenue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can't do an, an necessarily an apples for apples. This is what a VM costs me or a pass service costs me in Azure. Here's what I think it costs me on-premises. Uh, there, there is definitely a, a large TCO discussion to be had there. Now, 
Paz is obviously not going to be all rainbows, unicorns, and, and bacon. There's, there's going to be some hurt when you're trying to move into a Paz service, right? Have you seen some situations where that migration didn't necessarily go smoothly or there were some gotchas that either sure. forced going back to a VM or some tweaking of the application? Yeah, I mean, probably the most common one I've seen is in uh, Azure SQL, when people take an existing database workload and move it into Azure SQL. Now, sometimes that can't be moved in because there are features in SQL Server that don't exist in Azure SQL and that just can't be moved in there. But sometimes a workload gets moved in and it just it grinds to a halt and it's underperforming and it's not working as expected. Right. And really that's because Azure SQL isn't designed to do the exact same thing as on-premises SQL Server. Uh, Azure SQL has its own nuances and and best ways of running and ways to to scale and manage it, uh, which don't necessarily fit the exact same model as you would with an on-premises database. So again, we've talked about lift and shift of virtual machines. If you do a lift and shift of that database into the PaaS service, it won't necessarily work exactly as you expect. Hmm. Were there any specific gotchas that that you know of? Uh, I think SQL Agent doesn't exist. I, I feel like that's one of them. Yeah, uh, off the top of my head, I can't. I can't think. Uh, one of the things, and in fact, we we should touch on this as well. One of the the interesting things about public cloud is how fast it moves. Because right. we talked about getting your time back, and there are a bunch of people I've, I've spoken to, especially um, on-premises IT pros and architects, who think that once they move workloads to the cloud, their job's going to be gone. They're mm-hmm. not going to have a job to do because the cloud just runs itself. But actually. It's so fast moving and there's so many new things coming out and there's so much to keep on top of that probably your time will get used. It'll get used on different things and things which are advancing the cause of the, of the business more than worrying about what version of an LSI driver you need to have installed to do the latest DSXI upgrade, for example. <laughs> right. Uh, but, um, but your time will still be filled. Yeah, and that's probably an interesting thing to touch on. I mentioned it a little bit during the introduction, is that sort of fear uh, on the uh, classic administrator side of the public cloud and what does it mean for my job? So I I think in one regard, they're just worried that there will be no need for operations. So that sort of no ops thing that you you start hearing about. Um, That doesn't seem very realistic, but you know, some people worry about that. And the other one is, I'm going to need to learn a new thing. So in terms of no ops, what's sort of your, your take on the level of operations needed to function in the public cloud? Uh, it's just as much as uh, on-premises, but it's a slightly different skill set. So yes, there are new things to learn and a new way to manage things, uh, but the public cloud is not the, the domain of the developer. Yes, there are developer-centric tools, but there are many, many things in there that uh, are the domain of the IT pro still uh, and ever will be most likely. Right. And and so what would be some of the skills that w- someone who's looking to start moving into the public cloud, what were some skills that they might want to brush up on uh, that they might not have already from their on-premises environment? So uh, basic scripting is always going to be extremely valuable. Uh, mm-hmm. And that applies on-prem as well as in the cloud. It just becomes exponentially more so in the cloud because so much is built around uh, redeployment, rapid deployment, automation. Uh, having some some knowledge of scripting, and my language of choice there for scripting would be PowerShell. Um, mm-hmm. Just because it's so ubiquitous now, it can be used across pretty much any platform for uh, any cloud from any OS. So why not use it? Right. 
in terms of, of automation, um, I've, uh, it seems like it's a super powerful tool, but as with all extremely powerful tools, uh, it also has the ability to really mess things up in a very broad way. Uh, you know, ask, uh, fat fingering a particular setting in, in a script or a command can accidentally spin up or, or change a thousand VMs instead of 10 or something like that. Uh, have, you, have you seen any of that? And, and what are some ways that you think people could help deal with that uh, different level of complexity? Yeah, sure. Um, yes, I've seen that. I've seen people accidentally delete a resource group that they thought was dev, which was prod, and it's taken down an application. Oops. Ooh, yeah. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but, but there are mechanisms built into uh, cloud providers as well to protect you from that. So in Azure, for example, uh, you can put resource locks on production resources so they cannot be accidentally deleted. If you try to delete them, they will just, it'll tell you to, to go away uh, politely. <laughs> Some polite yeah. red text. Yeah, um, it, there, there's, there are governance frameworks and what you would call uh, a basic scaffolding that you put around, uh, for example, an Azure subscription to make sure that, A, when things are deployed, they follow set uh, guidelines, and B, if you try to do something that you shouldn't, it won't let you. So, for right. example, maybe your organization only allows you to deploy into uh, US East uh, and US East 2 and nowhere else. Uh, you can put those policies in place across your subscription so that if someone tries to deploy into a different region, it, it won't let them. It'll fail. Uh, maybe you need to have specific naming conventions. Uh, that can be enforced as well. Maybe there are specific resources you have deployed that you don't ever want to be deleted and you know will... Uh, always need to be running. They could maybe be updated, but never deleted. You can apply locks to prevent uh, those changes as well. So there, there are skills in knowing how to manage these features within the clouds, which are done differently from on-premises. And uh, those are important skills to, to have as well. I think that uh, Microsoft have uh, a document about how to, to build an enterprise scaffold, uh, governance scaffold, mm. which maybe we can link in uh, as well. That's a, a useful document to have a read through. Sure. Yeah, when I think about that, um, skills that people want to uh, adapt, it's not always technical skills that they need to sharpen up on. Some of it might be like kind of learning these governance skills and setting guardrails in place so other people can't uh, mess something up technically and blow up the, the whole company. Yeah, absolutely. So you can give people the the ability to go and do things themselves, but only within the as you say the guardrails of what you've defined. Right, right. Now, um, getting back to the PaaS services and mm. sort of the the migration path, I think one of the things that we've talked about before is you know you might lift and shift initially, but then it's time to kind of take a look at your your workloads again. Have you seen some companies actually follow through on that? Because uh, I know I've seen some companies go, oh, yeah, we're going to lift and shift it, and then we're going to launch this you know, two-year project to transform all our apps. And then it's a year later, and they still are just you know, trying to get their uh, head around managing the cloud <laughs> at all, let alone actually changing the app in any way. Yeah, it's, it's a really good question because the aspiration is uh, not the lift and shift, it's what you might call a move and improve, where you take your workload and you move it in and you make it better. So move right. and improve your workload into the public cloud. But uh, no, that's not necessarily what I see happening. Um, I will see, and, and when we're talking about improvement there, it's from the, the actual application or workload perspective um, mm -hmm. and then seeing if that's going to change. And actually largely, no. 
Um, what I tend to see happen is that things will get moved in, they'll get optimized um, from a cost and uh, high availability perspective, uh, and then they'll be left to run until they die, uh, until something else replaces them. And right. new applications will be deployed uh, in a cloud-native, cloud-friendly way. And over time, things will get shifted out and new things will get shifted in. Um, sometimes, though, very occasionally, I do see some interesting integrations of cloud-native features into existing applications, uh, which are pretty cool. Um, so uh, one example off the top of my head is uh, an integration with some of the AI services uh, in Azure with an existing application. Uh, it was for uh, a help desk, actually. So there was a, a company I was working with who had a help desk where they managed all their inbound tickets through an email queue. Uh, because that's clearly the most modern and intelligent <laughs> way to go about it, but it worked right. for them. Well, it's on we go. Um, they had that help desk queue running in Office 365, uh, and they migrated some other parts of their application uh, into Azure. So they're now running in O365 and other applications running in Azure. Uh, and what they did was they used uh, Logic Apps in Azure, which is a serverless construct. So Logic Apps, uh, for those who don't know, is a way of integrating different application components together uh, through a sort of flow-charted method uh, without any code required at all. So you basically drag between different application components, define some logic, and information can get passed between them. It's right. very cool and uh, very worth checking out. It's what you call integration platform as a service. So basically, they uh, had it so that whenever an email came into their help desk queue, it would get automatically passed through the sentiment analysis engine in Azure, mm. uh, and then it would do a sentiment analysis of that email, say, is this email uh, happy or angry? <laughs> and, and, and if it was an angry email, they would just automatically apply a red flag to that email. Okay, so it helps you prioritize what, what's yeah, coming exactly. in in the queue. So uh -huh. no change to their workflow, no change to the application, as it were, uh, but taking advantage of, of AI, machine learning type constructs in Azure with no code required, uh, to let them know when an angry email had come in. I thought that was quite cool. Yeah, that's a really interesting concept. As opposed to altering the application itself, you just, now that you've moved it to the cloud, you have access to all these new services and, and resources. How could you bolt something on to make your application better without altering its you know fundamental exactly. code? Yeah. That's pretty cool. I like that. And I might actually steal that. <laughs> <laughs> I, we, I mean, I, you know, at work, we've got a help desk group. They, they might appreciate that sort of uh, sentiment analysis when, uh, you know, they're running their managed services and, uh, and calls are coming in or, or uh, voicemails or I think really anything, you could apply that to anything. You think about a, a voicemail system that can send that voice uh, up to Azure to be transcribed mm -hmm. and then do a sentiment analysis on the transcription. Yeah, I saw Mark Brasinovich uh, tweet something similar not that long ago. He has um, a, a logic app uh, looking at Twitter uh, for specific keywords, and then if someone tweets something about one of those, it'll uh, do a compare. It'll check that Twitter handle against Microsoft's uh, CRM database, and then it'll tell the person who last interacted with that person uh, to go and to check out what's wrong with them. So if it's an existing customer or a contact or partner. It'll tell them, go and ask this person why they just said this mean thing or positive <laughs> thing on Twitter about this. So right. it, it, it to the correct person based on their CRM. 
Wow, that's really that's interesting. You know, Twitter seems to be one of those things that that's where people like to go and complain, and companies have yeah. seemed to realize that. So they're yeah. all over it. Uh, you know, looking for sentiment and and uh, and figuring out what customers are actually saying about the product. That's yeah, and that can be done with with no code. So no code required, just uh, dragging and dropping components effectively uh, in Azure. It's it's ridiculously cool. Cool. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about a little bit, and this is kind of our sweet spot, is uh, a hybrid approach to cloud. Um, mm. I've been hearing the word hybrid for a long time, and it means different things to different people uh, with varying levels of success. So when you think about hybrid cloud, what's sort of your definition behind it? And uh, why would you want to pursue like a hybrid cloud approach? Yeah, so for me, hybrid is consistent, and that's the key there. Uh, mm -hmm. In terms of how you manage it, how you think about it, how you deploy to it, how you run it, it is consistent. So if you're running something on-premises in a service provider in the public cloud, uh, you shouldn't have to have different skill sets for doing those different things in different locations. For me, that's what makes hybrid cloud. Anything else is multi-cloud. So when you have, okay. have a, a different skill sets and different tools and different ways of managing, that then becomes multi-cloud. So hybrid cloud is uh, vertically integrated for me and multi-cloud horizontally mm. uh, is how I kind of view it. Interesting. Yeah. I, so you could even say that like the VMware on AWS is sort of a hybrid cloud because you're yeah. using the well, same I, it, skills. It's hybrid, hybrid virtualization. <laughs> right. well, I guess it depends on whether or not you want to call VMware a cloud. I think yeah. you probably get it to <laughs> I, I probably I probably should uh, given who I work for. <laughs> Be nice about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you add all the additional layers that exist within VMware, all the uh, additional components, like their orchestrator and automation stuff, the uh, cloud director and those kinds of things, then you can really get VMware to a, 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 a something that approaches cloud. I, I feel like if you're just doing vanilla vCenter with some ESXi servers, then yeah, it's just advanced virtualization. Yeah. I, think, I feel like it seems fair, right? That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. Um, but I think the more interesting thing is stuff like Azure Stack and AWS Outposts. So yes. what's the? why would you want hybrid as opposed to just multi-cloud? Uh, well, as we say, hybrid is consistent. So once you learn in one environment, you've learned it in the other. So that immediately takes down the amount of learning you have to do. They're also typically better integrated as well. Uh, so the, the ability to uh, have a single set of ARM templates, for example, and deploy in the exact same way to Azure and to Azure Stack is a pretty cool concept. Um, the ability to have, when we've spoken about things like bursting of applications for many, many years now <laughs> from on-premises to the public cloud, but how often right. does that actually happen? Um, I, I've yet to see it. <laughs> yeah, me too. I've never seen it. I've, <laughs> I've asked a lot of people and I've had uh, a couple of people say, yeah, we've done that. We had to write the code ourselves. It's our own custom application, uh, but we can do that. But from a, a platform perspective, no, it just it doesn't happen. Um, but actually, with with Azure and Azure Stack, uh, you can do that. You can uh, have constructs in there which will burst using the same uh, same templates in the same way of doing it uh, from one to the other, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I think the challenge that I've always seen with that, and this is probably a challenge of hybrid cloud in general, is we haven't really solved the data gravity problem. Mm. Um, in that just being, if you want to burst a workload up to uh, another cloud, 
you may or may not need to take some data with you. And depending on how big that data is, it, it could be difficult to move. Um, and, you know, unless you're using some sort of NoSQL uh, database backend that's okay with not being fully consistent, then your writes are still going to have to go back on-prem. And I think that's, that's one of the main challenges that I saw around a lot of the bursting stuff, you know, five years ago when people were like, yeah, hybrid cloud, you're going to burst everything everywhere. <laughs> it's like, uh, maybe not. So, yeah, but um, we also see cases where uh, people have extremely sensitive data that they, they still feel that they can't put into the public cloud uh, and that still needs to live on premises. And sometimes that's down to specific regulatory compliance requirements. Sometimes those are geo-specific, sometimes they're industry-specific uh, and they can't put that data out in the public cloud, but they can put, for example, the front end out in the public cloud. So we do sometimes have, um, for example, uh, in-memory caching mechanisms out in the public cloud alongside the front end while the persistent data back end resides in Azure Stack. Uh, and public Azure is being used more as a, a DMZ type environment there. Mm, that okay. That's, that's an interesting deployment model. Um, yeah. I imagine there's some caveats around that though. So uh, have you seen that model deployed and, and some challenges arise around doing that? Uh, I, I've seen it spoken about, uh, and I know that it's being tested. Do, do I know caveats around it? No, not yet, but I'll definitely get back to you on that as soon as I do. Uh, yeah. Another interesting one that we're seeing just now uh, is a lot of talk around the IoT space, mm-hmm. uh, particular around real-time analytics. Uh, so a lot of people want to do literally real-time analytics on the factory floor, on a conveyor belt, but the latency up to the public cloud can be prohibitive to that. Sure. Uh, deploy an Azure Stack in the same uh, environment. You can run real-time analytics based on a model built in the public cloud on-premises and uh, get some of the benefits of of uh, well Azure automation and, and IaaS uh, automation uh, on-premises there. Sure. Yeah, I, I think that's that may end up being the most popular model out of all of them is the ability to take you know, with the rise of machine learning, um, that just becoming such a popular thing, training the models is really expensive, requires, you know, robust hardware and a lot of cycles. Do that in the cloud where you can scale it way out when you're doing a training run and then drop it all when you're done and then run the actual operations on something that's much closer to whatever's generating the data. Yeah, yeah. And we're definitely at the the birth of that part of the industry still. We're nowhere near... Uh, the full potential of that yet, but it is going to be a very interesting space. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's one thing to keep an eye on. Um, as we start moving to wrap up, uh, if you could sort of summarize three key points for the listeners that they should keep in mind when they're looking at like a cloud adoption or cloud migration, uh, what would those key points be? Uh, so key points, I guess, are uh, keep in mind that if you just lift and shift your workload into the cloud, you're probably not going to get any of the benefits of actually moving to the cloud and you'll probably end up frustrated and disappointed. Uh, always move your workloads in with a view to then taking advantage of some of the features built into the public cloud or uh, at least cost optimizing uh, those workloads. You need to be aware of where lines of delineation in support and responsibility are. Uh, and on-premises, that's very easy. You manage pretty much everything. Right. In clouds, there is a shared responsibility model that you need to be aware of. And depending on 
how you're operating. This could be split between just you and the cloud provider, or, or it could be between your developers, your IT pros, a service provider, and the public cloud provider. Uh, so understanding where those lines of delineation lie, very important. What SLAs do you have? Uh, all of this kind of vitally important stuff. And then I guess the, the other thing is just never stop learning. This is not a, 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 a static industry. This is not something that you deploy and leave for three years until the next uh, deployment cycle comes around. Right. The cloud is evolving all the time. Uh, and if you can keep up to date with it and keep learning, then A, life keeps it being interesting, which is great. Yeah. Uh, uh, but also you can continue to optimize and improve your uh, your infrastructure. I think that th- that third key point is is one that's most salient for me. And, and I think it's something that when we were talking about the concern that existing admins have about losing their job, it's as long as you keep learning new skill sets and staying relevant to the business, your job is probably secure unless you decide you want to automate yourself out of that job. Yes. Yeah, but if you, what you automate is uh, what you're currently doing, and that, again, frees up time for you to do something else. Right. Uh, the important thing is, I guess, this is, <laughs> this is a very fast-moving train, and you can sit and watch it go by, or you can just jump on and start uh, getting on board. It's, right. Yeah. So if people want to know more about uh, the topics we talked about today and want to follow you, uh, where can they find more about that topic and, and more about you? Yeah, well, you can follow me on Twitter at Kenny Lowe. Uh, my website is azurestack.tips, although that's currently being revamped just now, so content's a bit thin there, <laughs> though it will be improving in the near future. Um, there's also a new Microsoft IT implementer site being deployed just now, which is going to have blogs from a number of IT Pro MVPs talking about how to move workloads to the cloud uh, and how to bring the cloud back on premises as well. Uh, so that's going to be a really interesting one. That one just launched uh, last week, I think. Uh, oh, wow. Okay. Some, some very interesting stuff coming through there. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Kenny, for appearing on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure as ever, Ned. Thanks to Kenny for appearing on Day 2 Cloud, and thanks to you, dear listener, for tuning in. If you like the show, please subscribe and let me know on Twitter, Ned1313. If you have suggestions for future shows, I'd love to hear them. Until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.